Okay, today's word, the scripture reading is Ephesians 6, and it's verses 1 to 9. It'll be on the screen shortly. (coughs) Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that you may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, let's just pray for Tim and um, the, the word that has been, the Lord has placed on his heart. So, Father God, we just thank, thank you for this letter of Ephesians, Lord. Thank you. There's a bit of grit in this. And that you have something to speak to each one of us here this morning. So, Father, I pray that you just continue to anoint Tim. Thank you for his preparation this morning. Pray for boldness. Thank you for his heart. Thank you for your word. And we pray for each one of us now, Lord, that we would be able to receive the word that you're giving each of us to take away with this morning. Amen. 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 Thank you, dear. Well, I think most of you know I used to be a lawyer. It probably comes as no surprise when you see how technical and detailed I like to get into all of the little things that go on. But when I was working in that practice, I might have shared this before, There was often times when I'd be asked to act in an underhand way. The firm I worked for received claims via people's insurance companies, and it wasn't via touting for business through advertising. But because the insurance company were paying the legal expenses, essentially our bill, we had to make sure that any case we took on, we felt had a reasonable chance of success, was the phrase. That meant that we had to be at least 51% sure that the case was going to be successful. Rather a strange way of looking at a case, because you can never be 100% sure, and actually it's not a case that 100 times that's presented, 51 times or more the judge is going to find in your favour. It was so particular that even if we were 50-50 on whether it would work or not, we had to say, no, we can't take it on. I remember having to ring clients and tell them that their insurance wouldn't cover the case. I usually 
got told then by the client that I didn't know the law. I have been wronged. I, ha- I need to get compensation. I need some money. But when they received our letter explaining the legal advice, which was usually three or four pages long, 99% of them went away really quietly when they realized we did know the law, we had understood their complaint, and we wanted to say to them, unfortunately, your insurance won't take this on. There were times when, even if we had taken a case on, that the clients would disagree with our assessment of the compensation they were entitled to. In employment law, you're entitled to receive what you had lost had the incident not taken place, except where it's a discrimination claim, but I'm not getting into the technicalities. On one occasion, a client had been made redundant, and they told me, I want £60,000 because that will cover me up until I retire. I said, that's simply not possible because the statutory maximum on this particular claim was about £40,000. And even so, hers was worth about £7,000. She said, I want to speak to your supervisor. Obviously, he reiterated the same point. It made me realize as a lawyer that you never know how someone is going to react to something, whether it's good news or bad news or actually indifferent news. On one occasion, when I'd contacted this per- another person, I was asked to work in an underhand way. I was told, well, take, the case isn't going to work, but take it on anyway. Get some money from the client and we'll guarantee him more money. Alarm bells were ringing in my head because that was essentially gambling with somebody's life. Well, not literally their life, but it was gambling with their livelihood. This person had lost their job. I was being told, take three grand from them. Where was the three grand coming from to start with? And that we would get more money for them. Due to, my, due to the, the issues that, that rose for me, I actually said, I can't do it. And due to moral issues, they passed it on to somebody else. So I said, I can't gamble with somebody. I think in the end, the case settled for about three and a half thousand pounds. And that was only because it would have cost the employer far more to actually take that case all the way to court. It almost felt to me, working in that environment, that everybody who had been wronged felt they had a right to claim. They felt that they were entitled to receive a large sum of money because they no longer had their old job. The sense of entitlement and right has made its way into our modern-day society. And I think in many ways the pandemic has highlighted that even more than before. We've seen the marches that have taken place over lockdowns because people say that we have a right to see each other. I don't care what the government says. I don't care if it's going to affect other people or they're going to pass on COVID, but I have a right to see my family. I have a right not to wear my mask. I have a right not to do this. There's been so many marches about that. Yet all of the things we've had to do to curtail the virus has been the right thing, I believe. But people complain because their rights are affected. They don't think of the wider society anymore. Now, whilst it is true that we do have rights, sometimes we have to forego them for the greater good. Sometimes we have to put aside our own position for someone else. It would have been very easy for me to leave my home week before last during self-isolation. I was testing negative for COVID, but I didn't want to run the risk of a false test 
and unwillingly infect somebody. I gave up my rights of freedom that week to protect those around me. Well, today, we get to the last chapter of Ephesians. We've been looking at it now for about nine weeks, and we get to our last chapter. Last week, Helen spoke about the relationship between husband and wife, and how the Spirit guides our relationships. Paul continues at the start of chapter 6 with his exploration of relationships by looking at children and parents and slaves and masters. Now, before we dig into this passage in more detail, it's worth pointing out that in the past, or even now perhaps, this passage has been mistaken to show that Christians think slavery is a good thing. And whilst it does raise that point, Paul talking about slaves and masters, we have to put it into its context. We have to remember that Paul was living in a society where slaves were quite normal, that actually they were treated and respected as members of the family. And it's like saying to us, can you imagine a world without electricity? I, I couldn't imagine a world without electricity. Because electricity means we're able to do this. It means we're able to stream. It means we're, you're able to hear me on the headset. For us, imagining a world without electricity is like Paul imagining a world without slavery. So it's important to bear that in mind as we explore this passage. That it's not saying that we agree with slavery because we know slavery is wrong. But in the context that Paul is writing, that is where he is coming from. Indeed, many of the people Paul was actually talking to may themselves have been slaves, working for non-Christian masters. So when we look at what Paul is saying, he's not just giving commands to the children and the slaves, as you might expect, but he is actually giving commands to the parents and the masters too. In Paul's world, in the ancient Middle East, children and slaves were to be obedient, end of. That was the prevailing thought at the time. Indeed, even in perhaps as far back as Victorian times, children, think of one once in Royal David City, mild, obedient, meek as he, children must be. That's not the exact words, but it's thereabouts. So Paul here is writing to a culture which is hierarchical. And essentially, what he is saying in these few short verses is actually revolutionary. Because he's not just saying that children and slaves have to obey their masters, but he's saying there has to be a mutual responsibility between children and parent, child and parent, master and slave. And in many ways, I think to liken that idea of slave and master to our current society, we could think of it in the same way as an employer-employee relationship. In the last 20 to 30 years, there's been a significant move to allow employees rights and to protect, protect them so that there is a mutual shift, there is a mutual engagement. When it looks like you're facing a change at work, there is usually, there should always be actually, a consultation with you. Because it's not about the employer imposing something on you. Whilst it might feel like that, the law says it should never be imposed. It must be a consultation. I remember when I was on placement in Texas being surprised that someone could go into work and be fired on the spot and that's it. They've lost their job, lost their pension, lost the lot. Whereas here, that doesn't happen except in extreme circumstances. And if it does, people are wronged. Here, there is usually a consultation and a discussion. 
And I think that's what Paul is getting at here. There is the mutual responsibility between both parties, no matter what the hierarchy says. Because Paul reminds us that whether we are in a position of authority or not, whether in the church, whether at home, whether in work, or in whatever circles we move in, when it comes to Jesus, our master, there is no favoritism. That's what he says. There is no favoritism at all. We've already seen in our journey through Ephesians that Paul says there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. There is no difference in how you live out your faith in whatever denomination or tradition. There is no difference if you are a slave or a master, if you are an employee or an employer, if you are a child or if you are a parent. But there is one true God, a God of justice and judgment, and there is no pull in the wool over his eyes. We can't be like those, those evil masters, like the parents that demand their children to do stuff with God, because God will realize that. It's not going to work. There is no favoritism. God does not see it as, you're a child, you must obey your parent. God sees you as a child of God. It goes right back to where we started in Ephesians, that we are all children of God, and that is our primary identity. What we can take from this reading is that we need to love and respect one another. We need to make sacrifices for each other where we need to. We are all children of God. We need to approach our relationships with each other on that level, that we are all equal, that we are all children of God. No one is above another. No one has the right to take advantage of another. No one has power over the other that's how a family should work and friends that's how a church family should work too we are all here for each other not to build ourselves up not to see how much we can do in the church but we are here to see how we can best serve one another as children of God so that we can serve the outside world we need to serve each other here to show the difference that we can make to a society that is entitled and feels they have a right. Paul supports family life. That's true, that's what he's saying. And that of the extended household. In our current society, marriage and family life seems to be attacked on all sides. And that is leading to a breakdown of society. We just have to look at the research that's been done to know that that is the case. Those of us who profess the Christian faith need to remind the world of what marriage and family life is by holding to the teachings of Scripture. When we live out marriage and family life in accordance with Scripture, the family, whether it's our own blood family or our extended family or our church family, should always be a place of love. It should always be a place of security. It should always be a place of affirmation. And there should be a new energy that enables us each to grow according to how God wants us to grow. That's how we should function as a church. That's how we should function with each other here in Christ Church as a model to the society outside. In every church, it should be a place of love, security, affirmation, and a new energy. 
when we function correctly, we can be a place where we love one another. We can be a place where we support one another. Whatever it is that we are facing, whatever it is that each of us is going through, there is support, love and affirmation found in the church. Because as a church, we are all children of God. There is a new energy, as I say, that builds up as we prepare to go out into the world to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. As we work for the kingdom, there is that energy that bubbles within us when you get that gut feeling and you know you've got to go and do something for the Lord. That's part of being in a church family of love, affirmation and security. That's the ideal. But we know only too well that it's often not like that. We know that we let ourselves get in the way. We think we know best. We see weaknesses in those around us, even within the church. We see weaknesses and we try to exploit it. We build our identity in the church rather than in Christ. And that goes against what we learned earlier in this letter. When Paul calls for unity. And I think there is a call for unity here. And there's a call for unity towards the end of the passage. Which we'll look at next week. We're reminded through this reading. That we are a family. And that actually we have to work at that friends. We have to really work at being a family. And it's not going to be easy. Because too often once again our egos get in the way. And we think well actually I know better than that. But is that what the Lord is actually saying? We have to model to to society outside what it means to be a properly functioning family, a family of God, the family of God. It's clear from reading the Bible what marriage and family life should look like. So why in the modern world do we think we have it right and we're in a position to move so far away from Scripture? That's a prime example of us thinking we know better than God. That we see areas we can exploit people. That's not the case. Paul tells us we are all children of the living God. And again, we have to model love, affirmation and security within our family. As we've been through this book of Ephesians, it's not always been easy these passages are a bit are difficult and they take a lot of grappling with. But that's okay. Because it reminds us that our Christian journey isn't always easy. That there are times in our journey of life, of Christian faith, where things get really, really, really tough. There are times when we face those moral dilemmas and we think, what on earth do I do here? But when our identity is as a child of God in a family of love, affirmation and security... We can get through. I think actually the overarching message of Ephesians has been a very timely message for us here and now in 2021 as we hopefully emerge from this pandemic. It's important for us to remember the call to unity. In a time when the church generally seems to be at odds with each other. You've probably seen all the media reports this week of clergy being called limiting factors and people getting really cross about it. We are a limiting factor. I am a limiting factor. I know that. I'm not offended by it. It doesn't affect who I am. I am a limiting factor. 
But the church within each other, there seems to be that fight between it. And that's not good. Paul reminds us, actually, we are called as the family of God to be united as we move forward. He reminds us that we don't need to introduce teaching which is not compatible with Scripture. He reminds us that in a sec- it's a time when our secular society wants to invade the sanctity of the church. We, friends, have to stand up as Bible-believing Christians to speak up. We have to stand up and say no. Say no to the prevailing culture of the world. Why? Because it says it right here in the Word of God. And when we're a family built on the Word of God, we are a family of love, affirmation, and security. We do it with obedience to God and to each other. Paul uses these models of husband and wife, children and parents, slaves and master, because that's how society was modeled for him. And within the church, if we model living as a family, we too can model it for society. It's again, it's a call to be countercultural. It's a call that there are times when we have to stand up and say things which will not be popular in the public sphere. But as long as we do it with God at the center, we will be okay. As Paul tells us in Scripture, marriage is between a husband and a wife. It sets the standard for family life. It's how we nurture children. We don't do it from a sense of the child must do exactly as we say. We don't do it as a sense of the child must be meek, obedient, and mild. But we work together with our children to become, so that they become their own person. There should be that mutual respect between parent and child, between us in the church. Why? Because when there is mutual respect, we can all flourish. We can all develop. We can all have a part to play. We don't try and act underhand with each other. As I referred to at the beginning when I was in law, I was told I had to act in an underhand way. We don't do that in the church. There's no place for that. And as soon as the enemy sees that start to pervade into the church, he will get a hold. And we need to say that's not welcome here. We should not be underhand with each other. Because the Lord too will see straight through that. As Paul says, there is no favoritism in Jesus Christ because the Lord will look at our hearts. The Lord will look at where our heart is. So are we motivated to do this stuff for the right reasons? Are we motivated by the Lord to go out and change society? Are we ready to surrender our own rights for a brother or sister in need? Whether that's somebody sat next to you now, whether it's somebody at home, whether it's somebody who is not part of the church family yet? Are we ready to surrender ourselves for them and sacrifice for what they need? Are we willing to lay aside our own hopes and dreams if the Lord is calling us to something else? Paul tells us in verse 7, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether slave or free. No matter how we are feeling this morning, we serve the Lord wholeheartedly. We do it out of love for him. 
we remember that we are children of God. That we can strive together for unity. That we all have a part to play, no matter what position society sees us as having. In church life, we are all equal. We are here to serve the Lord, to serve one another, and to serve our community. As we come to an end, a quote from Walter Brueggemann, who was a theologian, says, The prophetic tasks of the church are to tell the truth in a society that lives in illusion. Grieve in a society that practices denial. Express hope in a society that lives in despair. Can you read that again? The prophetic tasks of the church are to tell the truth in a society that lives in illusion. Grieve in a society that practices denial and express hope in a society that lives in despair. We often find ourselves living in an illusion because the truth makes us uncomfortable. We as a church can grieve and talk about our true feelings, but society denies it because of the British stiff upper lip. We can express hope at a time when there is despair all around us. And in many ways, that quote sums up the call of the letter of the Ephesians, to the Ephesians. All that we've been exploring these last few weeks, we are children of God, called to live together in unity, to transform our society by each of us playing our part to further the kingdom of God, modeled on a family where there is love, affirmation, security, and a new energy. Let us never, never lose sight of that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that there is no favoritism in Jesus. We thank you once again that we are all your children. Forgive us for the times when we've used our positions in the church to lord it over others. Forgive us for the times when we've let that happen. Help us remember, Lord, that we are all equal. That we are your family. That we belong to you. Help us to model family life in society. Help us not to be entitled and feel that we have rights, but actually let us surrender those rights for our brother or our sister. We pray that you would build Christchurch into a united family where there is love, affirmation, security, and a new energy. Come, Holy Spirit, and have your way among us. Come and have your way among us, we pray. As we were praying before the service, there was just a couple of words that I feel may be relevant for somebody either in the church or watching online. The first was as we were praying, there was a sense of that line from a song. I can't remember the name of the song, but fix your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on him.
And the other one was of a, almost like a really dark black charcoal, you know, the really stuff that gets all over your fingers. And almost the Lord just smashing it as it splits in half and you see the beauty inside of it. It's probably not charcoal, but, you know, when you get like all that wonderful stuff inside, you need to get rid of that hard exterior to allow the beauty of what the Lord wants to do. So perhaps we need cracking open this morning. I don't know if that's relevant to anyone, but I just pray, Lord, and thank you for those pictures and those words. And I pray that if they are relevant to somebody here, whether in the building or online, that you would be speaking to them through those words and through that picture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.